the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for the day. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for revisiting these passages that are filled with the declaration of our faith. That we would live more consistently with it. In your son's name, amen. Well, we're in the first chapter of Colossians. It's a glorious chapter with which I am sure you are familiar. And I just avoided ending the sentence in the preposition rather dramatically. And it's on my mind because I ended a sentence with a preposition. That first sentence, let us be the kind of Christians other Christians are thankful for, I, for which other Christians are thankful. I, I said, well, was that, was that too pres- presumptuous or pretentious to sound like that in your sermon notes? So I left it wh- where you regular Americans could understand it. The kind of English that relates to the youth. But don't be sidetracked by that. Don't be sidetracked by the grammar. I know sometimes you'll spot typos in my notes. Some of you probably spot typos in the text of God. Oh, St. Paul did not word this correctly, you say to yourself. But actually we're here not to uh, edit the Word of God or edit even the pastor's outline. Um, It's a wonderful, Colossians is one of those wonderful books. Philippians and Colossians are wonderful. They're like the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Timothy's and Titus, because Paul's writing to someone he likes, that already understand, and are not goofing off. And so it's always refreshing to read through Colossians, it's always refreshing to read through Philippians, And then you end up going through Galatians and you realize, yes, Christians can really, even with pastors as apostles being their pastors, they can still mess up a church. We're good at it. Has it ever, uh, my my son, my eldest son, Davis, was, was out the last couple of weeks and he works in Manhattan in a very large law firm. Um... It's as the man as you can get. Their clients are Pfizer and major insurance companies so that when the common man like you tries to sue for some damages, they crush you. That's the firm. And he does well. They have a nice life back there. He's been watching the culture and watching just how bad things are. And they go to Tim Keller's church in Manhattan. So, so Keller's good. He's a good, good preacher. But Davis has been sort of overwhelmed with how bad it is. Just how the culture has gone to Hades in a handbasket. And being out here with just the privilege of their kids being able to run out the door and play in the yard without even asking and not be snatched by some, you know, um, predator... And it's usually you won't get snatched in New York, but some busybody will go turn your family into Child Protective Services for letting your kids play. Well, they'd love to be out here. They'd love to be away from that kind of 
calamity. And you perhaps have hung out maybe with some unbelievers or maybe even some believers that you go, why can't it be better than this? And I noticed this as I was reading this first part of Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And that struck me. It's, it's nice to meet believers, know believers, that you thank God for. That, that, that you don't have any concerns about, you know, they're not messing up their kids' lives, messing up their marriages, messing up their church life. They're, that someone like Paul could, when he prays for you, you pray for the believers, no matter what. You're, you're lifting up the saints and for what they need. And, but some people, you know, it's the, the southern woman's response, bless their hearts. Because they're so, they need the Lord to bless their hearts. But you might have a good friend who is a dear believer, and you're just very grateful for them. So that when you pray for them, you thank God for them, not just pray for them. And the thanking God, we always say that we always thank God for you when we pray for you, because, verse 5, verse 4, excuse me, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So I'm not just trying to, you know, say, isn't it, isn't it rough today when it's hard to find Christians to be thankful for? Because there's sort of a heart superiority in that, because you're the one measuring everyone. Well, wow. yeah, there are not very many Christians like me. I wish they were all like me. Really, we ought to be thinking as we step into this, are we the Christians receiving the Colossian letter as if we were the Colossians? Are we the kind of Christian that someone else is thankful for? Now there's a lot of demands that are put on believers or anybody by other people. You're supposed to always, everybody gets offended at everything you do. This is being what the Lord expects in the gospel. And consequently, inevitably I think, even someone who doesn't quite like Christianity, they're thankful they met you. They th they're thankful you're in their life. Graham is sharing about Hunter. Or the, the, the Correas that were here this week. Uh, and it's something simple. You know, what, what makes Paul thank God for them is their faith in Jesus Christ their love for the brethren because of the hope. Now something that's going to show up in the rest of this passage is that was just one, that was just a statement of the gospel essentially, at ultimate essence. You are dying. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, somebody was saying last night that Australia was just Filled with things trying to kill you. 
You know, that's, that's just what it's like down there in Australia. And so we sit back in our very temperate North Idaho climate with nothing but cougars and elk. No poisonous, venomous, too much of much of anything, no hurricanes. But did you know that even here, everything is conspiring to kill you? And it will succeed. By the, by, by the time this is done, by the time this effort of life is over, you're going to be dead on the ground and it's going to be looking for a new victim. Okay? Just, I want you to wrap your head around that for a moment with warm thoughts of death. Now why, is, why, why am I reminding you of that? Because the world wants to pretend there isn't any. You know, I like going to get my food from Safeway. Corporate, injected, Monsanto-fed food from Safeway. Wrapped in plastic, drained of all life, not recognizable as an animal. I go home and cook it and eat it with a smile. But back in the old days, everybody had to cook their own, kill their own, hunt their own food. And they understood death a little bit more. Half their family died from influenza. We need to be, re we're, we're living in a world that's probably created by our desire to conquer death. You've probably seen news stories occasionally from the science fiction fantasy world of people who are hoping to cheat death. Those people who have their heads frozen, they're dying of some terminal illness. Some guy's getting a head transplant. I don't know if you knew about that one. People desperately want to stay alive. Because of the hope that is laid up for you, the hope you have as a believer that is resting in your death and your resurrection. That's what a Christian hopes in. The hope laid up for you in heaven. And if you don't think that, if you get caught up in your insurance premiums, your retirement, your exercise, I was talking to Leon LaFerrier at the wedding. This friend got married this weekend. And Leon and Leanne were there, and they're old friends from way back. Both had, well, I put them together. And Leon's a strapping son of the North, you know, <coughs> six foot four, graying, red hair, trim. Wow, guy, he's probably close to my age, somewhere in there. Poor guy, he exercised. That was a mistake, which I have avoided. Blew out his knees. No, he has no cartilage left in his hips or his knees. Can't eat any gluten. He's miserable. Looks good, but he's miserable. We do everything we can. But as Christians, he is, Paul is thanking God for these Christians because the hope that is laid up for them has moved in them to bring about faith in Jesus Christ and love for the brethren. And if we if we get sidetracked from our hope, I'm not saying don't exercise. If you enjoy exercise, knock yourself out. You will pay. But don't try to eliminate the power that death has to suggest to you you might want to answer 
the question, am I going to be alive after I'm dead? Because death is that, once we face up to it, once we know it, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, that sits on the other side. Many people deny that there's anything after death, called atheists or Sadducees. That this life is all there is. But an awful lot of people live as if, even if they theologically believe in heaven afterwards, they don't think about it. They don't hope in it. And what I'm suggesting to you here is the Colossians had a faith and a love that existed because of the hope. How many things come to you in this hope? The degree of gratefulness. I've been talking to my father about his death. Get him up every morning, check to see if he's breathing. Wake him up, roll him out. Chat with him about death while he's in the tub. Because we like talking about death. He's fine with death. But, and that death moves him to use every second of his life that he has now and your emotion about it I think I may have shared with you a few weeks ago that he had he wants his funeral to be sermons given by his children about Jesus Christ not anecdotes about Jim Wilson sermons about Jesus Christ You change your mind about things. The emotional consequence of every doctrine. Ask yourself, what is the emotional consequence of that which you believe? Because if your hope, laid up for you in heaven, is there, someone like St. Paul may have heard of your faith, may have heard of your love. Because this is us rejoicing. We're gathered together of a Sunday morning. Because we love each other. Not because you know there's no membership here. Nobody checks the roll. There's no sign on the side that says this week attendance is 12. Make you, make you upset about, oh, only 12? Seems like more. There's no, no one checking. No one even makes you get up in time to show up on time. My wife was asking me why people didn't show up on time this morning on the way to church as we drove on time to church. There is usually one person on time, Caleb. He gets recognized. Maybe a couple others, usually the guests. They heard that it was at 9.30, so they came at 9.20. <laughs> and I said, there's, a way, there's one way, there's two ways to do this. One is, get people so, you know, knickers in a twist about the church rules and they're standing with the rest of the people that they show up on time. Turn it into a pharisaical or just work on them till they love each other so much they can't wait to get to church. So he's, all of you late people are going, does he think we don't love the other people? Yes. Not as much as your pillow. Your pillow. I could stay another half hour because they don't check... I'll be there for the sermon. 
But all those things have consequences. I can remember not ever wanting to go to church. Until I got my heart right. Then I wanted to be at church. I can remember never wanting to sing hymns. And then I asked my father to send me a hymnal in the Navy so I could go stand in the phone booth across from the barracks and sing hymns. Because the acoustics are great in phone booths, which you don't even know what they are, right? Young people. They're boxes in which you made phone calls. Singing hymns. Loving to. The reason we sing hymns at this church is not because we're a really old church. Not because we say, what could we do that was really boring? It's because the pastor likes them better than whatever it is they sing in those youth-affected churches. I like hymns. Because I sang hymns in a phone booth. This is the effect of what you believe. You are not being asked, did you believe and check off the right boxes of orthodoxy? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that Christians ought to love one another? Yes, I do. Um, do you believe in heaven? Yes. There's a different kind of belief there. Paul's looking at the Colossians and saying, this has had an effect. Your hope that you live in made you a certain kind of Christian. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. What he just described, faith, love, and hope, they had heard of before in the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, so among yourselves from the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. You ever parse those sentences out? Paul could be a little bit, you know, convoluted in his sentence. What did he just tell you? That this faith, hope, and love are the building blocks of your gospel. Why do we, like in Galatians, anyone preaches a different gospel than that which we have preached, let them be damned. Why do we get all upset? Why do you find that in a private conversation with Evan on the porch, he, he might draw lines you might not draw between Christian claimants, groups, whatever it is. Because we don't get to play with the gospel. Because not just because we're uptight, not just because it's our religion and we don't want to have anybody change it, because the nature of this gospel, once I start making the sacraments part of the gospel, if I start making church attendance part of the gospel, if I start making um, anything else a part of the gospel, then the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and life eternal, then I haven't upheld that which makes Christians Christians and worthy thanking God for. Usually getting wrong about the gospel makes the kind of Christians nobody's thankful for. Even inside their own groups. It bears fruit. It's growing. There is this expectation. Ever, people want to have results so much. We were talking about uh, business last night on the porch about leather workers. There's a, 
is a leather group called Saddleback that made real heavy duty briefcases by hand out of you know leather that was that thick. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but that's the guy, bulletproof leather. And some other company that was making sheaths for K-bar military knives, and they look like, you know, you could drive a tank over them. But then it became clear that these were such successful business. Saddleback has just caused so much disturbance in the force because they were all made by hand up till this point, and now they're not going to be. So what does that mean? What, why, why are you telling us this story? Why does a business suddenly go, oh yeah, everybody was really impressed with how we did it by hand, and that was really great, and we could charge a lot of money for it, but I don't know. I don't know, put some E. coli in the spinach. You know, we're, we're just done with this success business. No, they, they want to sell more bags. And that's why you get a assembly line going, and Henry Ford came up with that, and, and you crank them out in Taiwan. That's why. Because we want more. We want to sell more. So what happens to the church? So instead of looking at the message that we received from the day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth, we go, okay, but we need more people. We, really, the, the issue is how many people do we get? Let's not make this by hand. Let's not hold fast to this truth. Let's make a gospel that is more about what the church is doing today. Is the church doing stuff that the, the, the secular people would go, hey, that's a great church. They do things like that. The bearing fruit and growing is in this gospel and it only counts if it bears the fruit of faith towards Jesus Christ, love toward the saints. As you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So he's got first-hand knowledge of what these guys are like. He has not visited Colossae himself, and he's thanking God for them because their faith is such that it gets reported by other people. Now, what a great, why write the rest of the letter? Hey, really thankful for you guys. Looks like faith, love, hope, gospel, well done. Sincerely, St. Paul. He's writing one of those quick thank you notes that you all try to get away with at some point when you've been given a gift. And so, from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Didn't we just take care of everything we had to do? You know, he prays for them and he thanks God for them and he said good things about them, move on. We haven't stopped praying for you. Asking because, what's the phrase on, on, on TV? But wait, there's more. We have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, <coughs> bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Go back over that passage. You might say, but wait, there's more. This is the kind of life that, that some of us as believers need to have on our refrigerator, parsed out and stated that our need, the reason we believe the gospel, is we were sinners and we were dying. So, forgiveness, so that we wouldn't die guilty, because all ethics exists, because there's a judgment. That's the only way ethics exists. Without a judgment, they're not just, not just a God. Ethics does not exist because there's a God. Ethics exists because there's a God with an opinion. Okay? Uh, a really annoyed opinion. Ethics exists because, hey, I made that, and you're messing with it. And I don't know if you knew, but I'm divine, you are not, and you messed with my creation, even though you knew you shouldn't. And once you're dead, first comes death, and then the judgment. It is, for, what's that verse? For it is appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. So we know there's ethics, and we know there's a judgment. We know that we're walking up not just to death, but to the second death. That's what the writer of uh, the Apocalypse calls it, the second death, which is every man judged for what he has done. You died, you had cancer, got hit by the 7-up truck, whatever it took you out, death number one. And you kind of know, because you've been bad, and you've been good, and you've understood the difference between the two, that you needed to have someone forgive your sins. Someone to turn that hope, only a hope of judgment, aside from you after death, so that you could have hope, what did he call it? Laid up for you in heaven. So, that's sitting there with us. And then there is this life. We, we don't constantly just have the word, okay, how's my faith in Jesus Christ doing? Or how's my love for the brethren doing? This, oh, you know, I better look at the hope I have in glory. Those are good things to be thinking about. But he also is praying that they would be shored up by knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you would understand what's going on with ethics today. What, what, what are you responsible for and why? We covered it last week in uh, Corinthians 9 and you also see it in Corinthians 6. Paul says, don't you understand when you go to a temple of idols and you participate in their feast, you're offering sacrifice to demons. He says he wants you to understand you ever think about sin? I mean, not about doing it, but, you know, avoiding it. You ever think about why is that wrong? Because doesn't the evil one or whoever's tempting you whisper into your ear, well, is it really wrong? Is it really wrong? Did God say? 
You would surely die? Did say you shouldn't touch that? You're going to have all sorts of questions. So not being filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, if you can't describe, if you have to fall back and say, well, it's in the Ten Commandments and you're not allowed to do it. We just designed Christianity. I got saved by this marvelous grace and anybody who asks me how to live it, I'm going to tell them, this is the rule. It's just a big buzzkill. I know you wanted to go to the beach on Sunday. It's not allowed. Or Saturday, depending on your view. But it's not allowed. Thank you very much. You say, well, aren't those a list of good things? Yeah, but that's not the list of the life. The life is you understand. Love makes you fulfilled. You find the why is the wherefore. How does the love work? Why is it unloving in, in Corinthians 6 to go to a prostitute? Because do you not know you've been made members of Christ? Do you not know in Corinthians 9 that, that you've been made members of the Lord by partaking of Him? So if you went and ran off to the temple of idols, you begin to understand your love. To lead a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him. Bearing the kind of good fruit that understands what it's doing. Not the kind of good fruit that is the demanded law-abiding goody-two-shoes. We're trying to design some kind of Christian that other Christians are thankful for. That come across understanding the good. So their approach to the good is healthy, they're not like uptight about something. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So I like that caveat, that corrective, that hold back from people who want their ministries to grow big, 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 and big so they can become domineering, domineering, domineering and annoyance to all that breathes as Christians. We're not here to be strengthened because strong is good. We're here to be divinely strengthened, like God's strength, according to him. For all endurance and patience. What does the church militant usually suggest to you? America and, you know, masculine Christianity that has its hands on its hips and has something rude on a t-shirt and will be in their face because they are atheists or secularists or agnostics or something like that because that's the strong Christian whatever kind of militancy you might like back in the good old days it was the Crusades you got to kill some people nowadays it's taking a stand that is unpleasant and be it in their face about it you know what the strength is for to be strengthened according to his might for endurance and patience. Because like our Lord, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But he trusted to him who judges justly. That is stronger than some tough guy remark on your t-shirt. That, you know, 
has a has a like a dagger that fits like a cross, you know, shoved through a skull. Wouldn't that be cool? Kind of masculine. No, Jesus. If the graphics are good, I'm fine with that. But really, that's not the kind of masculinity. That's not the kind of power we're looking for. You're supposed to, as it gets worse for the believers, and it just might. You're looking at the election going, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Other than us dead in a ditch. And so, hey, prepared that we would be praying for one another, that we'd be divinely strengthened so that we could endure and be patient and none of this stoically patient, joyfully patient, satisfied. This is the way things go. Those are wicked people. Yes, they kill people like us. We're rejoicing. All endurance and patience with joy. You finally say, Yes, I'm patient. And you're in such great resignation, such noble laying down your demands. No problem, honey, I'll be in the car. We all understand the temptations that women are. It used to be they were so fine. Now it's they are so interminably obsessed with something not you, but the clearance rack in Nordstrom's. But we have to rejoice, guys. And he's not even talking about that kind of patience. That kind of patience should be, you know, standing on your head sort of patience. You can do that. It's when people are being bad to you, truly, trying to hurt you, trying to kill you as a Christian. But remember, you're the kind of Christian who looks at death and I've got hope on the other side. Life eternal. And I believe it, so my faith and my love, let alone my endurance and patience, exists in joy. And then it says, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. That hope, not only is it there to make you faithful to Christ, loving to the brethren, growing in understanding, knowing what's going on, joyfully, powerfully patient. But you come back around to that hope and recognizing what it has done for you, you should be thanking God for it. And may I recommend in your prayers that you Thank God for the hope. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Do we know what has happened? Paul's not just writing a panegyric about Christianity or always using hyperbole for, for rhetorical effect. You get the impression that the apostles kind of knew how big this was? What they were saying about this dead Jewish carpenter? I mean, that, they faced up to that more than anybody. Knew the guy. Hung out with him. Cooked on the beach. He's dead. He's God. That's a big leap. 
We're going to kill you unless you say he's not. Well, I'm sorry, but he is. That hope, that promise, that gift of Jesus Christ has to be in your heart, has to be what you understand as the gospel. And as you're growing in this, I recommend that you protect it with thanksgiving. Because who Christ is, I was thinking about it during the hymns. Uh, You know, a lot of the hymns I just grew up with, I'm used to them. And and then I realized, you know, somebody who's visiting a church like this, one, it's it's just a little weird. Two, there's something that you get those sing-songy 1800s, you know, revivalist hymns, uh, like Trust and Obey or Old Rugged Cross or something like that. And it's so culturally outside our ability to process that sometimes the wonderful things are said about Jesus Christ in it, wonderful things, that if you just stripped it of the music, stripped it of the things that trip you up, you realize you're speaking of your God. Is a wonderful when he says the kingdom of his beloved son there in verse 13. Is his son God's beloved son to you? Because we're again we're thinking about making you the kind of Christian that other Christians will thank God for. This hope is in Christ. This hope is not just, oh, there's an afterlife, and if you're good enough. No, this hope, there is an afterlife, and you weren't good enough, but for Jesus Christ. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. Notice he didn't say the bunnies and the elk and the trees and the Grand Canyon. He said nothing about the physical creation. Because he is grabbing you by the, the, what do they call it, the short hair? And making you look at that which is God visible. He is the image of the invisible. He has inherited all things. He has made unseen powers. These are all visible and invisible, heaven and on earth. Doesn't matter which power you're going to trot out in front of him. But what about my profession? What about my love for my wife? I'm sorry. What about this God? I'm sorry, you can trot him out. Visible, invisible, thrones, when he says thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities, those are all metaphysical in ancient mindsets. The principalities and powers, world rulers of this present darkness, all those things were created through him and for him. Do you know the divine agent with which you have to deal? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Key phrase, that in everything he might be preeminent. You know when somebody is eminent, the Lord is preeminent first among the eminences. You can't imagine 
someone that's great. Raise your hand. What about Taylor Swift? Um, well, I don't know. Maybe Jesus can outrank Taylor Swift. That was the attempt to relate to the youth. I've heard, I heard this name somewhere. Everything he is preeminent. If you don't have a view of the divine, if you don't, if you have not, if you've just visited Christian circumstances and kind of liked the people and you start coming regularly to their meetings, that didn't make you a Christian. But I thought I was. I'm sorry. The standards are about faith. You have to be believing something and this is what you have to believe. You have to have a view of you and it, sin and righteousness, life and death, judgment, because you're stepping under the head of this body, Jesus Christ, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's one of those moments where the proto-Gnosticism of the age because they had seized on the word fullness, which in the Greek is pleroma. And they were applying, they could not allow that Jesus Christ was the pleroma. Because that's the fullness. And so Paul goes, let me kick you in the shins for a moment. He is the fullness of God. Pleased to dwell. He uses the term other times in Colossians. In the second chapter somewhere, he says, uh, um, Chapter, yeah, verse 9. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That was the most insulting thing you could say to an Gnostic. Because they hated the body. They hated the flesh. They thought that was just wrong. So the fullness could only exist in absolute spirit. And Jesus Christ is in here making Christianity. No, it is the link of the spirit and the flesh. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. The task of this great agent is to bring you and everything else in conformity to God's will, one way or the other. Kicking or screaming, judged, damned eternally, life eternally, one way or another, he's going to reconcile this place. He's going to collect all the debts, call in all the notes. Send out the bouncers or the enforcers saying, are you going to pay for what you did? How are you going to pay? What are you going to pay for it with? For us, because he is out to reconcile, he says, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, that's where it's going to get paid for. And so it's not just the whole cosmos standing in awe of Jesus Christ and all of it responsive and uh, uh, under him by nature. You, verse 21, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Recognize that you're dealing with the divine. This is religion, folks, for the big boys, big girls. You deal with the divine. You're making claims about a being that is a god. It is not a way of life. As much as it is as an encounter with the god, and then your life has to respond to your encounter with the god. 
And if the God is Molech, it, as you sacrifice your babies. If it is Yahweh, you give this. But you're finding the preeminence. What is preeminent in your world? Is, is it you, really? Remember the narrative that you write of your life? Who's the hero? Guess it's not you. But for a lot of us it is. Who is preeminent? Who is divine? That's where your worship is. What is the fullness of all things? And then when you look, turn to look at Jesus Christ, you don't just see the, the hairy thunderer God who only is just ticked. You see a God who dies for you. So that we could become what Paul had prayed that people would be. In order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been preached to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He comes back around to that hope. Do you stand in that hope? Is this how you view the world? Do you see that first 15 through 20 as the sunglasses you put on in the morning to bring your life into order. This is my God. This is my life. This is who I serve. This is my hope. Not only is it my hope, what he did is your only hope. So your faith has got to be in him for you to collect on that hope. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church now that's, that's a passage ever goes eh, what it's not necessarily the kind of lacking like Jesus' death did not quite wasn't powerful enough to forgive you of your sins so other saints had to suffer as well to get enough grace together to take care of it. Could be the, in terms of the, uh, the lack, the lack in, that Christ suffered once for all and this life continues and people continue to suffer for Christ uh, in it. It's not necessarily just there is something um, grace missing the death of Christ that Paul had to finish. But there are other aspects or axes on which this lack could be. But that's a side point. Of which I became a minister according to the divine office which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now made manifest to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the theme of this passage, at least for this morning. Christ in you is the hope of glory. That is... You ever find the right tool? I just got my shed rebuilt by Andrew and Daniel. Um, not rebuilt. A different shed was built, which allows me to put my tools where they belong, in a drawer. And you get those one of those moments where you have a drawer, you pull it out, and then there are all your craftsman box and wrenches 
lined up by number. This is brief. It's not going to be. It's not going to last. But you ever have that desire to go out to Sears or wherever Home Depot and buy the tool that you need, and you come back like a little child, and your wife looks at you like, "What are you retarded?" And yes, I am, honey. But I have found the tool that will. And you go out to the shed and you do the thing that tool does, and it does it like advertised, because some Archimedes way back when figured out it would do that. You're looking for the tool. This hope is your tool. Do you believe as you face death, we are all plummeting. I'm like 61. I'm plummeting at this point. For each terminal velocity, I'm going to hit death so hard. And you all are too. I'm just looking back up and I see you all falling through space, sort of thinking you're not doing anything but having tea or coffee at the co-op and really you're dying just like me. Maybe on the first bounce, I'll come up and say hi. But the tool you have to deal with this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can make all the interesting plans you want. I I hate this commercial. Some woman about my age (laughs) walking through a park vigorously with a little vest on, and she's trim. And uh, she says, I'm 60-something, and I've got lots of plans. I've got, got a full life ahead of me. Come look at her like, oh, no, you don't. You'll be dead soon. <laughs> but the, 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 the fraud we try to perpetrate on ourselves, we try to have this, oh, this is going to be an endless loop of my life. I'm going to keep going. So you don't even think about it when you're young. You think you're going to actually make something go on that's interesting enough or, or you take on the stoic, yes, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be noble about it. Those aren't really good ideas. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man mature in Christ. This is every man's problem. So the warning is necessary, the teaching is necessary, because we want to present every man in this way. And for Paul, verse 29, for this I toil, striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me. This is something we've got to be about. You've got to be about it in your own life. You've got to be praying for it, for this to happen in others' lives. You've got to be doing the things that would encourage it in your life and in others' lives. And then maybe we can get together and be thankful for what the Lord is doing in each other's lives. Let's be thankful right now. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. For the might of your Son that he has stepped forward in ways that none of us can imagine to take care of that which we have ruined. Lord, he has taken the sting from death and we'd ask that you would uh, remind us to stand there with him and gaze on it patiently, waiting for it to arrive so that we can stand with you in glory. Change our lives today by that knowledge. In your Son's name.
Amen.